Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. If it's November, it must be time for the Masters, right? Yeah, I'm as confused as you are by the sports calendar in 2020, but it is Masters week, so we're talking to one of the top golf researchers and analysts around in Justin Ray, head of content at 15th Club. Justin was previously a senior researcher at the Golf Channel. He and I were ESPN colleagues for several years before that, and there's no one better to talk to about the state of golf analytics and to preview the Masters. In our conversation, Justin and I will also talk about what 15th Club is, what he does there, and how they assist golfers and media, how golf data has evolved over the past couple decades, how the stat strokes gained is calculated, what it means and how it can be used, other ways players use data on and off the course, what he makes of Bryson DeChambeau and his approach to the game, how all this trickles down to the average golfer, and how to get started in golf analytics. We'll chat about his process for diving into the data to preview a tournament, what makes the Masters different from an analysis standpoint, and some of his players to watch at Augusta. Then we'll cap it all off with how Barbaro, yes, the horse, got Justin a job at ESPN. Then True Media's Albert Larcata will join me to react and wrap things up. One note on the interview, the audio quality is not quite up to our usual standards because apparently I hadn't figured out how to operate my new computer yet, so I apologize for that. Otherwise, this is a fun talk. So without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with Justin Ray. We're joined now on Expected Value by Justin Ray, head of content for the 15th Club, former senior researcher at the Golf Channel and ESPN. Justin, welcome to the show. We'll dive right in with what does the 15th Club name mean? What does the company do? So the name, if you're, if you're not familiar with golf, you can legally only have 14 clubs in your golf bag. So we, in turn, are the 15th club for, in the bag for players who we help. Uh, we advise them on practice plans, using statistics, data, um, helping them kind of hone in on what they need to improve on. We help players interpret, you know, there's, there's so many statistics in golf now. And um, we'll help them get them, use those statistics to get the most out of their own games. Uh, we help players with scheduling. Um, finding the best course fit. Like, let's say you're a you're a 70th ranked player in the world um, on the European tour. Uh, we can find a way to structure your schedule um, to where it fits your game better and maybe improves your spot in the world ranking. Maybe you jump up into the top 50, which is always big in golf because it gets you into all the majors, WGC, stuff like that. So, um, so we do that with players. We work with the uh, European Ryder Cup team, uh, the International Presidents Cup team in terms of player selection, uh, grouping. Uh, strategy for those competitions nearly pulled off a big upset in Australia last uh, last winter um, just fell just short of the international team but they did win did beat the Americans at the European uh, at the Ryder Cup in Paris a couple of years back so um, we also I work more on the media side of it um, mm-hmm. we work with we work with places like Sky Sports is one of our big partners we've worked with like the PGA of America uh, we work with the USGA um, and basically assist them with uh, storytelling, content on social media, stuff for their broadcast, things like that. Um, that's where I come in a lot. We got our hands on a lot of different stuff. We work with yeah. uh, man- manufacturers as well, um, helping them, you know, tell better stories marketing-wise about some of their best players and giving them more access to some data to improve their products. Um, I can keep going and going. We basically have our hands <laughs> in, in all kinds of stuff in the world of golf, uh, and it's a really exciting business that I'm really proud yeah. to be part of. So let me ask just to clarify. So like in baseball, for example, they have analytics departments and, and yeah. their jobs are to kind of do. So you're kind of serving as an 
analytics department, if you will, uh, for specific players, because they absolutely, you know, individuals don't have their own you know, traveling team or whatnot. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. So um, it'd be analogous, you know, the kind of thing we do for players like Mark Leishman and Rory McIlroy, um, help them with their strategy going into, let's say, Augusta National next week. On the 13th tee, when players hit it on this side of the fairway, they yeah. have X percent better chance of making birdie here or whatever that might be. That's the kind of strategy we'll put in play and you know, help players week to week, um, whether it's a new course or one that they're intensely familiar with, like Augusta National. For golf, where does the data come from? You know, you mentioned hit on this, hit in this spot, you get birdie this percent of the time, stuff like that. It's obviously coming from somewhere, and you have this across multiple, you know, courses, competitions, all that. Where does the data come from that you use for something like this? So the ubiquitous data source in men's professional golf is PGA Tour's ShotLink tool, um, mm -hmm. which is basically laser tracked data for every shot hit on the PGA. So maybe not every shot, maybe like ninety. 95% of shots hit throughout the season on the PGA Tour. There's a few overseas exceptions where the data's not there. But basically, that gives you this incredible trove of data that if you know how to mine through it, you can come up with some pretty remarkable insights. So traditionally, the way I can best describe it is when you, on a broadcast, you might hear, man, this guy's such a clutch putter. He's just a great clutch putter. Well, you know, we can tell you that he makes 97% of his putts between 6 and 12 feet on Sundays when he's in contention, something like that. Nice. So you can get much more detailed other than the kind of colloquial generalizations that we're kind of used to hearing mm -hmm. um, in sports and analysis. And that kind of data translates directly to, to players as well. Um, you know, in, a player might have a feel for, man, I'm, I'm really not getting many birdie chances throughout the course of a round. My, I don't think my iron game is, is you know, as on point as it was earlier in the season. We can go to a player and say, yeah, actually – from 150 to 170 yards, your proximity is down, and it's in the 25th percentile when earlier in the season you were in the 60th percentile, something like that. So we can specify that kind of thing. But going back to your question, sorry, I kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent. Uh, yeah, yeah that data source is uh, PGA Tour shot link data, which has basically every shot hit on tour for the last 15 seasons or so. Okay. Um, and then for some certain events in Europe, we work with uh, some other clients to have some something comparable. It's not quite as detailed as shot link data, um, but it's a tool that we're able to use to gather uh, strokes gain information for the European tour. Okay. Let's talk strokes gain since you brought it up. It's yeah. maybe the most common advanced stat. I mean, it's something I think it, you see it in broadcast now, you see a reference in golf articles, all that stuff. What does it mean? How is it calculated? Yeah. So it's basically an evaluation of how good you are at something compared to your peers. So Let's say you gained one and a half strokes on approach shots throughout the course of a round. Like every shot throughout your round has an incremental value and it's comparing the quality of your shot to what the field average is. And that, that field baseline is it's developed through, like I said, the thousands and thousands, really millions of shots um, are used to develop a baseline so that, um, okay, if Rory McIlroy hits his approach shot to 12 feet on this hole, it's worth this value. So anyway, you add that up at the end of the round and it gives you, you know, what that number is, uh, how many strokes you gained against the field, whether it's off the tee, um, on approach shots, putting, around the green, whatever it might be. You add those together, those individual skill set numbers. You add them together, and you get your strokes gained total against the field. And ideally, um, that's always going to be, you know, how much did you beat the field average in that given day? So basically, it's a really detailed way of breaking down the value of each shot. It sounds super complicated. But basically, if you hear 
all right, this guy is first in the field in strokes gained approach, which is kind of what we want to get to is the point where it's a digestible piece of information mm-hmm. and not some long-winded data point. You can evaluate your ability on, you know, approach shots or, you know, Bryson's number one in strokes gained off the tee or Denny McCarthy's number one in strokes gained putting, whatever it might be. So hopefully that makes some sense. It sounds a lot to me like expected points added for football, just in the sense yes. that the raw number itself or the total number, I guess, doesn't necessarily tell you anything different than whatever point differential or something like that in football. It sounds like the ability to break it down into different aspects is what really makes it useful because you can pinpoint where a guy is or isn't doing well. Correct. And it's a, it's such an upgrade over the traditional stats, you know, for so long in golf, um, we really just had honestly beyond scoring, not a whole lot until about 10, 15 years ago, you Mm -hmm. might have greens and regulation, which is just, you know, the percentage of time you hit the ball on, on the green and two on a par four or putts per hole, which this is this is the best way to explain the value of something like strokes game putting, right? Is that, all right, so in the past with traditional putting statistics, if it's just putts per hole, let's say you miss the green short into a bunker right. and then you hit your bunker shot to three feet and knock in the putt. You had one putt. Well, That's the good. value you gained from your putting on that hole, the value didn't come from the putt. It came from the bunker shot, right? Mm-hmm. So your number of one putt throughout your course of your round is a little bit misleading. Where strokes game putting, it might say instead of, okay, you had one, you one putted that green, your value on that putt might be, you know, infinitesimal. It might be 0.01 or something like that. Whereas mm-hmm. if you hit your bunker shot to 12 feet, you've got a really difficult putt remaining to save par. That's obviously much more valuable in terms of your putting performance. So the value of that putt would be, I don't know, 0.72 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And like you said, those the long-winded like 2.65, whatever, that, those numbers don't necessarily give you anything, but you contextualize it with the other players in the field and how they perform, and that gives you Tiger Woods led the field and strokes gained approach to the Masters and went on to win. It gives you that piece of information that tells you, you know, how much better a player is at a particular skill than you know, the field or, you know, average. Yeah, it's complicated, like you said, but I think it makes sense. It lines up with other sports, whether it's football, whether it's expected goals in soccer. So if you're familiar with these advanced numbers in other sports, it seems to kind of line right up with uh, what we're talking about there. Do the players, are they looking at stuff like this? I mean, I know it's a great media tool. It's a great storytelling tool. How about players pulling in things like strokes gained into kind of their prep process? Yeah, I think more and more over the last few years, players have bought into it. Anything, like I explained with that strokes game putting metric, you know, anything mm-hmm. that's able to more specifically tell a player what they're good at, what they need to improve on, um, you know, if you can get a player to buy into that and they believe in that, then yes, they're obviously, they're absolutely going to be on board. Golf, <laughs> sometimes we get to a point where there's just too many numbers, whether it's the new age uh, track man data, tracking, you know, ball speed and flight and angle and things like that or it's something that um, the traditional sports fans might not be familiar with, like the strokes gain stuff. It may seem like it's overwhelming, but really mm-hmm. it's telling the best stories that we've ever had performance wise. Um, mm-hmm. I can't tell you how often I wish I knew what like Ben Hogan's strokes gain approach was <laughs> or like right. tiger at the two at the 2000 U S open at Pebble beach. It's arguably the greatest performance in the history, individual performance in the history of sports right. winning by 15 shots. I, I don't know what his strokes gained putting was. I don't know right. what it was his strokes gained off the tee at the 97 masters, you know, when he right. was unbelievable from the tee. I wish I had that. It's just cool. that, that kind of sentiment 
uh, for mm-hmm. golf fans it just tells you what the value of those numbers are and how much they mean and how yeah. you know rich those stories can be from performance yeah no that'd be cool if you could just not only say tiger destroyed everybody but he destroyed them in this way i mean in probably every way but you know specifically i can tell you i can tell you he hit 10 percent more greens in regulation okay right. but just if something. i can tell you if i can tell right there's value in that but if i can tell you that his iron play at the 2000 open championship was X shots better than anybody else. That gives you a more clear picture of why he was so dominant that week. Where's the, where's the golf world at data wise? You mentioned the track man and stuff like that. So what else is out there in that, uh, yeah, kind of biomechanics type stuff or, you know, driveline, if you're familiar with baseball, those, these types of things that are, uh, what else is out there and, and how are people using that? Well, the guy who's going to be most synonymous with the new age data, obviously, is our reigning U.S. Open champion, uh, Bryson DeChambeau. Yep. And the buy-in he's had, just beyond the new age data, but what he's been able to do biomechanically with, his, with the golf swing. The golf mm-hmm. swing is something that's going to – it's been dissected for 200 years, and it'll be dissected for another 200 years, and we're never going to get to a, a real brilliant consensus about it. You know, there's, it, there's some artistic value in – and a lot of elements of the golf swing. But there are things that Bryson's figured out from a biomechanics standpoint to where he can replicate an incredibly fast and powerful motion. Um, and that's become his sole focus in his training. And he's now altering his body to get to the point where, yeah. okay, I add mass, then I can add speed. And that's going to give me the ability to carry the ball 340 or whatever his goal is. You know, his goal is 200, 210 mile an hour ball speed which is like what long drive competition guys do. Like the guys who wail on it as hard as they possibly right. can. He's taken elements from that, which in the golf community forever has been just seen as like a comic sideshow by a lot of people. But he's taken a lot of the valuable biomechanical type approaches that are in long drive competitions. And he's applying it to the 50th degree. He's applying it tenfold mm-hmm. and changing his body in turn to fit it. So I don't know if he, if Bryson DeChambeau is going to cause, you know, there to be a hundred guys who lift weights six times a week and are crushing protein <laughs> shakes on the driving range. I don't know if that's what's going to happen. It probably won't, but I mean, look, the guy won the U S open. He's the top right. 10 player in the world. He's the favorite, the masters next week. Like there's some value to it. Right. And he's used this kind of new data that biomechanical swing speed data has translated to, him since the hiatus ended gaining more strokes than anybody by far off the tee and he's got a major championship in tow now because of it so that's kind of the most interesting new frontier for me is integrating some of this bio uh mechanical information into what it can mean for the golf swing and from what you can tell what's the reaction been like i guess among the old guard i mean every sport i feel like you know there's a slow transition uh from we'll just say traditional to advanced statistics for lack of better terms. What's the, what's the general reaction been in the golf community to what Bryson and others are doing? I'll start with maybe the reaction in general to like the new age shot link data, which mm-hmm. you were probably on an email I sent at ESPN trying to explain strokes game putting at one point. I, I definitely went to a golf seminar where <laughs> you're trying to explain the things and then I would forget it. And then when I would actually need it, when the major would come around for sports center, I'd have to come back and, and refresh everything and whatnot. So, yeah. Yeah. Look, it's like anything. It takes time. It takes yeah. people need to see it and um, understand it in order to give it value. And then they'll listen to you talk about it. Like it's not, mm-hmm. it's going to take a while. It's, it's going to take some time. And uh, from a broadcast perspective, it's taken several years, but it's become 
you know, over the course of basically a decade, it's in every golf broadcast that you're ever going to hear, read, listen, talk about, whatever. Anything you consume with golf is going to be mentioned. So it does take time. Now, in terms of the, there's one thing that I, and it answers another one of your questions that you can ask me later, but there's one thing that in golf is problematic moving forward that maybe isn't necessarily there in other sports. Like, for instance, the old guard's reaction to the Blake Snell thing in the World Series, right? Mm -hmm. Where the Rays went by the book and pulled Blake Snell before he could face the order for a third time. Okay, that didn't work out, obviously, and the Dodgers won the World Series, but there's not, like, real tangible, terrible impacts on the sport, right? Like, the game may move slower because of the pitching changes, or it's not as exciting with many balls in play, and, you know, it's not bunting and hit and run and stuff that's exciting. But that's more visual, right? Mm -hmm. In golf, if you have players carrying the ball 350 yards or something a generation from now, you're making many of the most important places in the history of the sport. The course is obsolete. So you're basically to the point where Augusta National can keep trying to add distance to some holes, but at some point you run out of earth and you run (laughs) out of, you run out of, of waste. Like, like for example, St. Andrews is, I mean, is the most historic important course in the history of golf. And unless there's wind blowing, you can't have a, you pretty much can't have a professional tournament there because players just hit the ball so much further than they used to. Hmm. Now in Scotland with the wind, it's given itself, you know, some defense and, and the, the elements gives the course a little bit more of a lifespan because of that yeah. element. But and grass I mean, that comes up to your shoulders and everything. Right. But if you get a docile day at Pebble Beach yeah. 25 years from now and guys are able to cut corners and i mean are you going to start making 8500 yard golf courses this is the ultimate like you know existential threat that a lot of these old yeah. guards see to the mm-hmm. game now i see a lot of value in um how bryson is putting puzzle pieces together and i think it's super interesting to take a statistical mathematical approach and try to look at, at this golf tournament like it's a puzzle that i can solve and you know i think yeah. that's super interesting there's a lot of intellectual value in that but there's a fear that this driving distance emphasis and the correlation is too the one of the reasons why it, there's not some radical slowdown like changing the equipment is because golf equipment makes so much money and you know the equipment companies back <laughs> a lot of the reason that there is professional golf. Yeah. So um, it's it's a really interesting conundrum, but I think that's maybe the key hang up in the sport when it comes to the old guard and the new data and the new approaches to golf is that, you know, are we rendering some of our most treasured places um, in the sport mm-hmm. obsolete. I mean, it's like we hit the ball too far, so we have to bulldoze Fenway Park. Like, right. that's not a problem that exists in a sport like baseball, whereas in golf, maybe you can't have a golf tournament at Riviera in 25 years because it's just mm-hmm. too short. Yeah, yeah. What would you do in baseball if suddenly everybody was hitting 80 home runs or something? You know, that would be something extreme. But yeah, you can't move all the fences back to 480 everywhere. That's essentially what golf has tried to do is, you know, they've lengthened every golf course conceivably on the professional circuit around the world. Now, there are other golf golf course design elements, and I won't get into all that, where you can try to, you know, angles and things that take mm-hmm. take some of that distance advantage away, but you really run the risk of, of potentially... It, I don't have an answer either. I'm, I'm not on the... I can't really definitively say either side, you know, what we need to do, because I think there are pros and cons to both, but... I hadn't thought about it from the angle of putting a golf course together. So, you know, not that anyone's building anything nowadays, but, you know, if you want to design a golf course and build something and you want to attract a professional tournament, like it's got to look a lot different now, I guess, than it would 
10 years ago, five years ago, something like that. And definitely, if a life of a golf course is a century, 150 years, mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to think of what golf might be like. If you're designing a golf course now, you've got to think of what it might be like in 2050, 2060. So right. what does that look like? Does someone who looks like Aaron Donald go out there and try to hit the ball 400 yards? I, I, yeah. I don't know. I, I, it, we've never seen a more tangible um, evidence of that being possible than what Bryson DeChambeau has done the last hmm. 12 months. Interesting. Get back to some of the stats and metrics and stuff. So again, stroke gain, and you can break it down a lot of different ways. What else is in that kind of new wave or advanced type of stuff that, that you think is interesting as you're, you're looking at stuff? It, when it comes to the new data, um, strokes gain is kind of a manifestation of all the, all the intricate details, right? So mm-hmm. it gives you a definitive value on that golf shot. But I think there's, there's a lot of cool things that can be done with really specific measurements. Like one of the things that you'll see frequently on golf broadcasts now is a statistic called proximity to the hole. And basically yeah. it tells you how close your approach shot is from X distance. And now over the course of a round or a season, it doesn't really tell you a lot because it can be situational. But let's say uh, for a tournament, uh, a player from 50 to 125 yards, basically wedge shots that aren't pitches, a player leads the, leads the field in approach shot proximity from that range. I mean, that can tell you, that can tell you a lot about a player's acumen with his wedge game and something that's really important in, in the pro game to give yourself a ton of scoring opportunities. It can tell a good story. I really like that. Um, I think a lot of the measurements around the green um, can tell you a better story too. You know, for years we always just had scrambling percentage, which kind of had the yeah. same. That's you know, a chip and a putt basically around the green. Like how often can you do that to save par? But you're not necessarily deducing who the best chipper in the field is, right? You you could have a guy who chips it to six feet and makes every six footer, right? And that's the same value as a guy, you know, chips it to an inch and taps it in. But that laser data can tell you, like, the statistic is proximity around the green. And that can tell you, like, okay, Ricky Fowler or Jason Day is the best chipper on tour, the best short game player on tour, because his chip shots are, you know, average one foot six inches or whatever it might be throughout the course of the season. So there's a lot of really cool information that that comes from some of that advanced data capabilities that when you think about it, the numbers are, are seemingly endless in the sport, right? Right. I mean, yeah. Every can... shot is, every shot is attributed to value. Every decision is attributed to value. The top player plays 20 events, four rounds, about 70 shots around. Like that's a ton of data and it's a ton mm-hmm. of information. And if you know how to mine it and use it correctly, it can give you some really cool stuff. Yeah. And like I said earlier, you always hear whatever your golf cliches or your TV guys are saying and now we're able to quantify almost everything out of that, which I think is, is pretty slick. Um, what's next? What do you think might be on the horizon in golf data? You kind of touched on a lot of it already. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was the, the, the Blake Snell analogy and the baseball thing was kind of yeah. the, where I'd see what go next. One of the mm-hmm. things I've really enjoyed in this sport is uncovering a lot of the untold history of it. Golf, it doesn't benefit a lot. I, I, the sport I always use to compare it to is baseball, right? And baseball box scores have been in newspapers for forever. Yep. And we have this love of baseball statistics and something that's been you know, ingrained in part of the sport for years and years and years. Whereas in golf, there hasn't always been a lot of that. It's basically just who won the tournament. We haven't really had a lot of that information. So being able to dive into the history of it and uncover a lot of stuff um, last year before the Masters, I, I created a strokes gain total database, which you can, I know I described a whole lot of intricate strokes gain data using laser information, but strokes gain total, you can deduce 
like that number. That's just comparing how good you are compared to the field. So mm-hmm. all you need are scores to come up with that. But anyway, I was able to, I wanted to be able to definitively say, okay, how good was Ben Hogan against his peers? And compare him to Arnold Palmer against his peers. And compare him to Tiger Woods against his peers. And able to kind of bring that together in a way that we've had for years in a lot of other sports, right? You're able to look at like a uh, player efficiency ratings of Wilt Chamberlain or, you know, what the the batting war was for Babe right. Ruth and Lou Gehrig. But we're never able to do that with Hogan or Palmer or Gene Sarazen or whoever it might be back in the day in golf. So there's been a great opportunity in the sport that isn't necessarily present in the others to dig into and uncover some of the numbers behind the historic stuff. And, you know, beyond the advanced data things, I think that's been something that's really been interesting and cool to dive into throughout my career. One kind of final thing on the state of golf data and stuff is golf is something that is played at the much more casual level. You know, you're a golfer. Baseball fans don't go out and play baseball much, but golf fans often go out and play golf. Uh, how has any of this data improvements in whether technology or whatnot, how has this trickled down to you know your average, and whether it's club pro or even someone less than that, just you know someone who goes golfing on the weekend, something like that? You mean you don't go hit the blocking sled after the Chiefs game? Uh, it's possible. I can, I can either <laughs> confirm or deny. You got to protect Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, it does have some tangible impacts in the golf industry. Look, uh, I'll be the first to admit in this sport, we will sell you as, a, as an <laughs> industry. We will sell you anything and promise you that it's going to take strokes off your game. You, yep. you shoot 90, you'll be shooting 80 in six months when you blah, blah, blah. You know, whether it's a swing fix or whatever it might be. I hope that uh, learning more about a player's game uh, in terms of like golf tracking data doesn't become a, a kind of, you know, cut strokes quick type scheme. But right. there is a way for, you know, learning more about uh, a player's own game and what your strengths and weaknesses are. You know, there's tracking devices. We have a program called Waggle at 15th Club that can help with some of that. But like there's tracking devices you can put on your own equipment that'll tell you, you know, and, and then GPS programs from your phone that'll tell you like, okay, I'm terrible with my long irons or whatever it might be. And you can use it to implement improvements in your own game, right? So I think that the data can be helpful in that sense. I think we're still a ways away from posting strokes game putting at the club championship. I don't think we're, yeah. we're at that point yet, but, <laughs> but there is a lot of technology that exists in the sport that um, will give you as much information as you want to learn about your game. If you want to really know how bad you are on that snap hook you hit once around, <laughs> How many shots that's costing you? We have a metric for that to tell you that, but it can have a positive impact. It's like anything. If you use it, if you use it in a smart way, um, it can have a positive impact. On you. All right, let's move kind of to the media stuff that you do and, and also talk some masters. So let me just start in general. You know, your job often is you're previewing tournaments. You do this every week. What's your process when you're doing that? How do you attack all that data? So I always like to start with course and tournament specific trends, mm-hmm. and then I'll kind of build from there because you're always... Every week you're going to have Russell Henley has the best scoring average at the Houston Open the last six years, whatever it might be. Insert player name and tournament, and you're always going to have that. And you can kind of build trends from there. So finding those trends, invariably, you'll end up with the top players in the field too, right? So like one of your statistics might be uh, Dustin Johnson might end up leading it. You, you come up with that. All right, DJ's in the field this week. And then you build on some storylines from there. Kind of all grows outward from, from one initial thought. So my approach is always just trying to find context for everything. Um, yeah. You know, the, the value in the storylines, not just numbers for the sake of numbers. So um, oftentimes, and you, you'll know this as good as anybody, 
you'll dig and dig and dig and you might come up with 10 notes and keep one, you know, yep. that's going to really be a, the, your 500 foot home run. Right. So yeah. I've thrown away a lot of stuff <laughs> over the years, but um, no, you just kind of, kind of relentlessly build, right. You just start with, with one idea and grow from there. But um, the first thing I always start with that you're always going to have week to week, the information is kind of like tournament and course specific data. And then you can kind of, you'll get an idea off of that, an idea off of that, an idea off of that. So, and then before you know it, you've got a big old pack of the information you've got to whittle down before you yeah. get to your TV crew. <laughs> how, how about the masters? What makes it different from kind of a research numbers standpoint as you prep for that? So there's a couple different approaches. This is a, obviously a tournament that is so, you know, one of one, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's the only major championship that's held at the same course every year. There's such a, a tie into, you know, tradition and, and it being so unique on the sports landscape. Whereas if I go into a PGA championship, I might look at the best scoring average in the majors since X or something like that. I might stick more with, you know, best scoring average at the masters since X. I might make right. it more singular than, than branching it out. This is also, it's our Super Bowl, right? It's our right. biggest yeah. event of the year. And you get so many fans that aren't nailed in week to week to, to golf coverage. They're not, you know, they're not DVRing round three of the Sony Open. Like they're, you know, they, they come in for, yeah. it's it's the Masters. It's the big tournament right. no. year. It's, yeah. yeah, this is me. I watch, you know, some four majors and that's generally about it. Ryder Cup, something like that. I'm the, I'm the yeah. major guy. And I totally understand that as even as somebody who works in golf. As a sports fan across the board, it's kind of how I file tennis. I, you know, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll watch Wimbledon, U.S. Open. I'm not staying up late for prelims yeah. of the North and South or whatever. I, you know, it's yeah. just not going to happen. So, um, but anyway, so... That being said, you, you focus on the best, most important stories and not necessarily the most detailed statistical stuff. So focusing on Augusta's history is big, player, big moments, um, things like that. Um, and because you're introducing a lot of fans to a lot of players they might not be familiar with, you know, golf fans who fly in once a year, they might be familiar with Hendrick Stinson now, but, you know, Hendrick's 45 years old, hasn't played a lot the last couple of years. The casual fan who's flying in doesn't know that. They right. have never heard of Patrick Cantlay or Xander Shopley. Um, so you've got to give them a little bit more context. Be like, okay, this is why Xander Shopley is such a great iron player. This is why Patrick Cantlay doesn't really have a lot of weaknesses. Don't mm -hmm. assume that the fan knows everything going into it right. and introduce them to some of the strengths and get them to buy into these new guys. And, you know, hopefully they'll enjoy their experience watching the, the Masters. How is this tournament going to be different now that it's being played in November compared to April? Any, any changes, anything, anything different there? I, I don't even know. Yeah, for months, I thought it was going to be the weather, but I've checked the forecast, and it's actually projected to be warmer next week than it was last April. So, well, go figure. Yeah, so everything, you, you know, it's like everything else in 2020, what you plan for, and you know, right. throw it out the window. But, <laughs> um, the number one thing from a practical standpoint is just that there's much less daylight. Um, mm -hmm. So, players mm -hmm. are going to be going off split tees uh, the first two rounds okay. just because there's so much less daylight. Right. This right. is the only major championship that they could probably play with these type of daylight conditions because it has the fewest amount of players having traditionally around like 80 to 90 guys instead of 144 or 160 makes it much more practical to be able to get in uh, in the fall. So yeah. um, that's the one thing that's going to give it an interesting look. I mean, beyond the place on the calendar and um, things like that, but the weather conditions I think are actually going to be pretty comparable to what you're used to seeing. Like I said, I thought throughout the year that we might have a couple of frost delays or really cold days, but I think the low the whole week is supposed to be like 60 degrees. So, nice. um, right. yeah, which is good for a certain defending champion with a cranky back. 
<laughs> among the usual suspects, anybody that jumped out from the data is a, a favorite to you for a certain reason? I've been saying this for a few months now. I love Justin Thomas this week, mm -hmm. uh, next week at the Masters. Statistically, he's the best iron player on the planet the last 18 months or so, most consistent. Okay. Um, he's improved his Masters finish each of the last three years. He led the field in strokes gained tee to green last year. He just didn't putt well. And if he putts better, which tends to come with more experience at the Masters, this is going to be his fifth appearance, I believe. And he's going to have a great chance. His, his ball striking travels everywhere. Super consistent with his iron play. Another guy, John Rom, can win anywhere. Doesn't matter. You, you go have an invitational tournament on Mars and he can contend. Like, it doesn't matter where. <laughs> uh, but he's been really good at Augusta, fourth and ninth the last two years at the Masters. He leads every – this is a fun stat. He leads everybody – in par four scoring and par five scoring the last three years in Augusta, wow. but he's just been terrible on par threes. Mm. So maybe a little don't, bit. Of don't take him to win the par three contest. Well, it's canceled this year. Well, I guess definitely not then. <laughs> It'd be a really bad bet this year to take him to win the par three contest. But um, the guy, maybe a change in approach, change in strategy, which also comes in time for a young guy. Mm -hmm. um, that could help. He's got no weaknesses in his game. He's good at everything. Um, he's been tremendous off the tee in his appearances at Augusta so far. But, you know, the guy we talked about earlier, Bryson Shambo is going to be fascinating. Just the different angles he can take off the tee, how, how many corners he's going to be able to carry. He's going to hit flip wedge into a couple of par fives, which is going to make Bobby Jones turn over in his grave. But <laughs> it's, uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch. That guy just has to putt better. He has yeah. been really bad putting at Augusta National. There's about 70 players with eight or more rounds at the Masters the last three years. And Bryson's dead last in that group in strokes game putting. I think so that's it's bad. not just yeah, it is bad. It's not just like a, okay, he needs to get better trend. It's he's been awful and in order to contend, mm. he's gonna need to flip that script. So JT, if I'm going to the window and betting on one guy, it's Justin Thomas. Anybody further down, you know, outside the I don't know, top twenty or so that maybe has some numbers that kind of pique your interest as far as their chances? So this is a tougher question than it might normally mm -hmm. be, um, because the Masters field was locked in right. before the pandemic hit. So, like, yeah, yeah. Daniel Berger's 13th in the world. Victor mm -hmm. Hovland's 24th in the world. They're not playing They're not in the tournament, which is going to be – it's a really odd situation that, mm. you know, some of the best players on the planet are in the field. Scotty Scheffler hasn't won on the PGA Tour yet, but he is, he's the reigning rookie of the year, making his Masters debut. Really unbelievable ball striker. For a guy making his debut, I would say my concern would be, you know, nuances and understanding the greens at Augusta National. But Scotty doesn't really putt well anywhere. So and he still <laughs> performs pretty well. So I think his his tee to green play travels so much that um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he contended. He contended to the PGA Championship earlier this year. Um, mm -hmm. He missed the U.S. Open due to COVID. And then a veteran who I think could surprise some people, uh, Sergio Garcia won last month at the Sanderson Farms. Uh, okay. All the work I did throughout the season, Sergio, I, you know, he he wasn't flashing with like big results, but I would I would do these these you know, stat breakdowns week by week. And Sergio was through the roof in TD Green performance. He just putted so bad throughout hmm. the season or else he would have had a pretty big year on the PGA Tour. A guy with that much experience on those greens, it could come together for him. I, I don't think he's going to win the tournament, but I would not be surprised if he finished in the top 10 next week. And he's a guy hmm. who is largely off the radar week to week um, on the PGA Tour at this point in his career. Let me ask one general question, just kind of everything we've talked about. If I'm someone who... I'm hearing this and I'm thinking, I didn't even know all this stuff existed. All this golf data, golf <laughs> analytics. How, where do you point someone to kind of get started in learning about what all these numbers are, what's available, what they mean, et cetera? 
So if you're like just in your infancy, never heard about it before, um, I would tinker around on the PGA Tours stats portion of their website, mm-hmm. which is a really elementary way to answer the, the question. But if you're if you're really not familiar with it at all, um, I'd say mess around on there, and you can really you'll learn a lot. I mean, you might not know that Bryson DeChambeau actually didn't lead the field at the U.S. Open and strokes gained off the tee. It wasn't the reason he won. He won because he was the best iron player and putted really well. Or you might you might change your perception of uh, what some players are really good at and what they're not as good at. Um, but if that's your, if your baseline is, wow, I didn't know any of this existed, you know, maybe that's a good place for you to start. If you have an interest in working in it, being part of it, um, I think there are a lot of different angles you can take. Um, you know, whether you want to get into media or help players or maybe do both, like I'm fortunate enough to get to do, just being really passionate and being, you know, really into what you do is, is probably the most important thing for me. It's, it's such an exploding industry and this kind of information has become more mainstream. More players are going to use it. There's more of a demand for it. Um, in terms of fans, in terms of broadcasters, um, in terms of players at home wanting to get better, there's always there's going to be a growing demand for this kind of stuff. So, yeah, no, there's a there's a lot of really great uh, places you can look. Data Golf is a cool website um, that will kind of tell you a little bit more about uh, things like win probability and um, some interesting kind of advanced math type things. But yeah, or you know, if you if you're really into it, you know, shoot me an email. We're always looking for talented people at Princeton Club. So. Nice. Yeah, I like the plug. Good stuff. Uh, okay, we're going to wrap things up with our playing favorite segment where we went through some of your favorites. Uh, so let's start with what is your favorite number and why? I thought about this a lot last night after you sent me this question. And I don't want to, I, I don't know if anyone said this yet. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say pi is my favorite number. Oh. Because it goes on forever. It's one of the few <laughs> things that goes on forever. Like the outreaches of space, human stupidity, and pi are like the three things. <laughs> I like so, it. No, that is yeah. unique for sure. Uh, okay. Who's your favorite athlete as a kid? Any sport? Uh, it's Hakeem Olajuwon. I'm a Houston guy. Grew up in Houston. He was my hero as a kid. Brought us the back-to-back championships in the 90s. Awesome dude. And yeah, Hakeem the dream, man. That's that's my guy. Tiger Woods has obviously dominated golf for the last couple decades or so. So I, I know you obviously deal with Tiger numbers all the time. You put your Tiger number of the week in a lot of your articles and such. So <laughs> Yeah. This is maybe a tough one, but what's your favorite Tiger Woods stat? It's an endless reservoir. It literally is completely endless. The number of ridiculous things you can come up with with the guy, which is why, like you said, I put that stat at the end of every uh, weekly article. This is probably my favorite one, though, because it's just so obscene. From 1997 through 2013, Tiger was 126 under par in majors. Okay? That seems good. Second place in that list of guys with 90 rounds or more, 251 strokes back. <laughs> Is that all? That's it. Yeah, so so just, this Tiger just, guy was good. Just 251 shots better in the majors than anyone. Oh, man. Over a 16-year span. That's crazy. All right. Yeah. So you're a Texas guy. You like barbecue. So what's your favorite barbecue place? The, now, this was probably the toughest thing you're going to ask all day. There's a place in Driftwood, Texas, about an hour from me, called the Salt Lick. And it has a, like an open air fire pit barbecue thing. It's it's a religious experience to see. Like you walk in and the smell and the flames. Angels are singing. Yeah, there's harps playing, and the the harps are playing Willie Nelson though, and <laughs> That's it's weird. just yeah, it's just thoughts. Oh, it's it's an amazing thing. Franklin's is the famous spot right. in Austin where everybody gets out of the airport and go get in line. Franklin's, but. Their brisket is worth the wait. 
That, that's the best brisket I've ever had. And uh, I will say, too, you being uh, a Kansas City guy, the burnt ends in KC yeah, are right. something – it's tough to even describe. It's so unique in the yeah. world of just of cuisine or anything. Um, yeah. Man, it's tough to top. I'll forget all about the Texans losing by 30 to the Chiefs if I can get a burning <laughs> sandwich at the end of it. Uh, right, we'll call it a deal. Uh, yeah. And so finally here, a favorite how did I get here moment for you where you kind of are able to soak in, like this is pretty cool where I've gotten career-wise sort of thing. Yeah, I think for me it was probably at the beginning of my career. Mm-hmm. Um, the first few days, I was an intern at ESPN in 2007 when I was still in college. And like I went in the first day and, you know, all the sports center anchors are walking around and I'd never seen anything like it. Like four days before that, I was finishing a shift at Foot Locker in Columbia, Missouri. <laughs> so it was very, it was a very aggressive juxtaposition of those two yeah. things. I think that was, yeah. that was one of them. My first assignment on the road at ESPN was the 2010 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. Ooh, and wow. I had never even, not only had I never been to Pebble Beach, I'd never been to California. So like that was, that was a, I mean, it was a, I went in, uh, Trey Wingo, uh, hopped in a golf cart with him and drove around, check out the golf course. And I was like, what am I doing here? Like, this is unbelievable. So those are, those are some of them. I've got to play at some unbelievable places. Mm -hmm. Um, I've I've played at Royal Troon the day after the open championship. I played at Carnoustie the day after the open championship. Um, I've got to talk president's cup strategy with Ernie Ells and Adam Scott. Ernie wanted a beer when we were, we were talking, it was after hours and Ernie didn't have a bottle opener for, for his beer. And I had one on my keychain. Oh, hero. Yeah, exactly. I saved the day. So he was able to crack open the Heineken, but yeah, no, there's some moments like that where, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm unbelievably fortunate and, and super happy for what I do. I'd also like to say in the spirit, we're, you know, we're a very tense, divided place, America right now. Mm-hmm. But for a Kansas Jayhawk to welcome a Missouri Tiger on a podcast, yeah. we can all we can get through this. Everybody, we can get through like, this. It's yeah, all we, possible. We got through a border <laughs> war or border showdown or whatever they call it now, and and look at us. This is great. Yeah, exactly. So, in that vein, I do have to usually wrap things up, but I have to get my favorite Justin Ray story. I have to get you to tell this. Uh, it involved how you got your job at ESPN. It involved a horse and it involved Bill Self. So, <laughs> I'm just going to turn you loose and let you tell this story. Yeah. Okay. So winter 2007, uh, Kansas is coming to Missouri uh, for a college basketball game in which uh, my alma mater, Missouri, is going to get drubbed mercilessly by the Jayhawks. And uh, we're, we're up we're up early. I think it's a noon tip. And we went at it hard, me and the boys the night before. We got up early and started back up. We're having, you know, we're 21 years old. We're having, we're having a great time. In our haze, uh, preparing for this basketball game. This was the week um, the racehorse Barbaro was on Sports Center every day. It was like a health update thing yep. because Barbaro was in critical condition. Tragically, the horse ended up dying. And then it was like the next day, I think, was this basketball game. And we're given poster board for signs like the hold up in the crowd. And in a murderous scrawl font, uh, I wrote Bill Self, who's the Kansas head basketball coach, Bill Self killed Barbaro on a piece of poster board. And that was the sign. We wrapped it up in a jacket and got it into the arena and then had had the sign in the stands. This all has a point, I swear. Uh, that's the sign I have up. Uh, John Anderson is a Missouri alumni. He's a sports center anchor. 
and John is at the basketball game. He's courtside. They, you know, he waves to the crowd. Before the game, he's walking around shaking hands, and he sees my sign in the crowd, Bill Self Killed Barbaro. And we're like <laughs> 70 rows up. John points to the sign voraciously and laughs, and he marches directly through all the people because he wants to shake my hand. And I have John sign the Bill Self Killed Barbaro sign. It, great, funny moment, awesome. You yeah. know, and then and then we watch our basketball team get crushed. Okay, months later, I've applied for the ESPN production assistant internship and an ESPN research internship. And uh, I, I was getting along in the process in both, and I didn't get the, the production associate internship. But John sent an email to some of the Mizzou kids as an alumni, just a, a token of, of you know goodwill. Hey, nobody thought I was going to be anything when I was a kid. Keep working hard. It was just a really a short, appreciative, you know, thoughtful thing for him to do. Yeah. Um, I replied to John's email, and I said, "Thank you, Mr. Anderson. Very kind of you. You may remember me. You signed my Bill Self Killed Barbaro <laughs> sign. I'm currently applying for the research internship. I hope to get to meet you someday, or something like that." I'm in the library at the University of Missouri. I think six seconds later, I get a reply email from John. He's probably sitting there working on SportsCenter for that night. And he says, in all caps, I have recommended you for the research internship based on your sign alone. <laughs> and two months later, I got the internship as the ESPN researcher. I turned it into a career, and I've been doing this ever since. Uh, so Barbaro plus Bill Self plus... Coors Light. Yeah, plus a, a haze-induced sign. A haze of, of youthful nonsense. It was a um, professional golf media career. Uh, and that's how it happened. Can't make it up. Yeah, one of my all-time favorite stories from any of my ESPN days. So I don't think we're going to top that. We've always fun to relive it. I hadn't, I hadn't told it in a while, so always fun to get to relive that. Memory. That's good stuff. We'll get a picture, a link to a picture up in our, in our show notes too, so you can, you can see the visual proof that this happened. So uh, Justin Ray, head of content for the 15th Club, thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks for having me, buddy. Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Justin Ray, head of content at 15th Club, for joining us here on Expected Value. Follow him on Twitter at Justin Ray Golf. He is highly recommended for great golf notes all the time, especially this week of the Masters. You'll also be able to find his daily Masters recaps on The Athletic this week. And be sure to check our show notes for links to other golf analytics articles. And perhaps most importantly, as mentioned, you can see a picture of Justin with his Bill Self killed Barbaro sign back from his Mizzou days. So I'm joined now by True Media Senior Director of Analytics, Albert Larcata. First of all, Albert, let me point out that we at True Media as a company, apparently have a serious flaw in our hiring process. We have 15 or so employees, all in the you know 25 to 50-ish age range, all pretty interested in sports, as you would expect, given what we do. Many of us were high school athletes, at least. A few played in college. And somehow, none of us play golf. I feel like this is some sort of statistical improbability, and I want this to be your next project to figure out the odds of all this happening. It is wild. It is wild. We tried to get other people here on the on the post show, and instead you're stuck with me with my golf hot yeah. takes. Sorry. Yeah, you got the short straw for sure. So, um, so let me start just one thing that Justin talked about, and we kind of talked about this on the pod, but I like strokes gained and it's kind of child stats just in the sense that these are really good examples of creating and finding stats that quantify what announcers say what players say 
you know, all the golf cliches of a guy says he doesn't have a feel for the greens or her short game is incredible. She just can't keep the ball in the fairway or whatever. Don't hit it here. Or you're doomed. Like the best stats like strokes gained and things like that are just describing that. So, Hey, we can quantify how bad he was on the greens or how good she was uh, from T to green, whatever it might be. It's the same thing with, you know, expected goals in soccer. You know, Messi is really good. Messi overachieves his expected goals or EPA in football that the chiefs are really good on third down and the EPA numbers are off the charts on third down, which matches exactly what you think if you watch the Chiefs pick up these third and 13s like they're nothing. So I like that. Strokes gained, great stat, very useful in storytelling. So it works kind of all the way around. I know you're interested in kind of the future of golf and how data is going to affect it, the way that guys like Bryson DeChambeau approach the game differently. What did you pull away from that? What do you think? Yeah, I find that the most interesting thing about golf, the DeChambeau angle. I think you and Justin talked about it, but... What, what he did, putting on 20 pounds, kind of, not that he was a bad golfer before, but he wasn't, you know, doing as well as he wanted to do. And now that he's kind of, you know, put on the weight and analyzes every piece of his game, I think in that article, in the, in the SI article, he talks about being a perfectionist about everything, throw, you, you can throw any amount of numbers at him and it wouldn't be enough. Um, I, I guess that that's what I find most interesting, right? It's like challenging the status quo of, of a sport. I mean, a, a, for the most part, a sport is just a game like any other game. There's optimal strategy that you don't always know at the time. You don't maybe don't have time or don't have all the information, but there's some optimal way of playing the game. So, I mean, that's what Moneyball is all about in baseball, right? Like there were people weren't optimizing getting on base. On base percentage wasn't a, a highly uh, thought of stat until they realized, well, the more guys you get on base, the more guys you bring around to score, the more you win, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, in football, going for it on fourth down was not a popular thing, but there's strong data that supports that that's the optimal way to play the game if you want to increase your chance of winning. So in golf, it's no different. And golf is unique because it's just you, right? Like your opponent is yeah. the course, I guess, if you will, but you're, you're really, you have more control over how you do in the sport of golf pretty much more than any single person has for any other sport that are, you know, for the most part, team sports. So even more reason, right? Like you should mm -hmm. just dive as far into the numbers, as far into the data as you can optimize whatever it takes, uh, you know, whether it's sports science -y type of stuff like Bryson yeah. seems to be into or um, anything, just it's a game. There's an optimal way to play it and data is there now and you the answers are out there. So if you're this fringe PGA player or, you know, college player coming out, like I feel like you should just go head deep into it, figure it out, figure out what is it that what's this 1% little niche I can find for myself that will make me that much better than other people who aren't studying the data as much as I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's super inter interesting to me. Kind of those, that case you mentioned right there, this fringe guy who's a, you know, borderline PGA tour player, maybe, or, or maybe even below that. How could someone like that use all of the same information that someone like DeChambeau is using to, you know, not necessarily even be a superstar, but just make a great living on the PGA tour for a long time. Or, you know, you hear in baseball all the time about, uh, Tim Wakefield gets demoted. He can't cut it at shortstop or whatever. So he decides to have a knuckleball out of desperation and it works out. You, you hear these guys switching positions or changing the grip on a curveball, whatever it is, uh, out of desperation to, you know, keep themselves in the majors or off that bubble, whatever it is. So I'm, I'm really interested to see over the next 
10, 20 years, the route that golf takes with regards to all this uh, data, with analytics, with sports science, whatever. Because I feel like, and there may be some of these guys already, these these fringy type guys or even below that can elevate themselves significantly by doing some of these things that so many other players don't do or don't do as well. So it'll be really interesting for me to watch to see what sport golf tracks like, you know, is the difference now and 20 years from now going to be like baseball over 20 years? Is it going to be more like football where it's a slow change? I don't know, but it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah. I I, I have to throw this in just because this is an amazing quote (laughs) in the SI article that I know you're going to link into the, uh, into the pod notes, but (laughs) the Shambo would never have been in danger. He never once thought I'm going to go practice my putting now. Like yeah. who, who said, what golfer says that? Like what, what, what football player or what, you know, baseball player, I'm not going to practice batting right now. I'm not going to practice fielding. Yeah. Like it's just, it's wild, but it works, right? Like maybe he, he's onto something. Maybe, maybe putting is just you, his, he, it goes into it more than just that. I just find that quote funny, but he could yeah. tend to like, it's all about properly controlling the speed, starting it online. And that's it. As long as you're like mathematically sound and what you're trying to do, like don't, practice you know slopes of greens and this and that and the other just like (laughs) hit it get it online that's it as long as you're doing that well you don't have to practice i i I just find that funny yeah it sounds crazy uh just because it goes against the general things you hear about golf how it's important to get a feel for the greens and whatever but then i think about you know like i played a lot of like pga tour golf on the computer and stuff growing up and i can maybe kind of see how you know stuff just clicks and you and you know it or you don't I, i don't know but uh the reaction to him is also pretty interesting, just how some people embrace it, some raise an eyebrow, some shun him completely. Uh, and we'll see how we'll see how that looks again another 10 or 20 years later. I don't know. So, all right. Thanks, Albert. And thanks again to Justin Ray for joining us on the show. Again, follow him on Twitter at Justin Ray Golf. If you have any interest in the Masters this week, uh, check our show notes for various articles, including the Sports Illustrated article that Albert referenced a couple times. Follow us on Twitter at True Media Sports to get notes we research and articles people write using our research platform. And please share the podcast there. And we always appreciate good ratings and reviews on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you find the podcast. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. We'll be right back.